0: Hey, my name is Sean, and I like learning about how things work and why. By day, I'm a designer and researcher, and I moonlight by interviewing exceptional people here on Promise. Every episode of Promise is an open-ended discussion on the idea of Promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success, or the commitments we make to get there, Promise showcases tomorrow's heroes before they get famous. Today I speak to Danai Fajas, founder of Co-Futures. A musician and urban planner by training, Danai founded Co-Futures in 2021 and is building it into a specialist consultancy focused on making urban planning easier to understand. In our conversation, we cover the breadth of urban planning as a field, public distrust in development and change, Danai's determination to rebuild that trust, the novel ways he's trying to do it, and what the world looks like if it all pans out please enjoy my discussion with Danai Khajus. Danai, welcome to the show. Hey Sean, glad to be here. Good to have you on board. Let's start with our common urban planning background. So you and I, uh, we met more than a decade ago studying urban planning. We've had quite different roads since then um, and pretty divergent career paths. And admittedly, I'm not really in touch with the urban planning world anymore and haven't been for a good number of years now. Uh, so I'd like to start off with your take on the present day state of urban planning. What do you think's going on right now? What's important right now?
1: Wow, Luke, a huge, a huge question to start with. And I mean, there's a couple of places to go with this, but... I've been living in London for the last couple of years and back in Melbourne now for a good part of over just 12 months now, realising that a lot of the challenges that we face here in Australia are very similar overseas. and. I think obviously to say that there's lots of stuff happening around the world right now, which is in some way or another influencing what's happening on the ground here. If you look at the big macro trends around like cost of living, housing, and all those real human challenges, there's a lot for the industry that we really need to adapt and focus on at the moment.
0: Okay, so you've mentioned cost of living and housing, and I think those are two things that people would commonly associate with urban planning. But if you were to give, I guess, catch-all term or catch-all definition for urban planning, what do you think it would be?
1: Yeah, so look, I think it really depends on who you ask and you'll probably get slightly different responses here, but I think from my perspective, I see urban planning as this multidisciplinary practice that really brings together lots of different professionals from design, from planning, from landscape, from engineering, all sorts of built environments professionals, I'd like to call them, which really come together to help create the right settings really to make great places. And I know that kind of sounds like a bit of a kind of a throwaway line there, but ultimately at the end of the day, what planning is about is about Creating places that are inclusive and that people can come together and connect and vibrant and places that we enjoy to spending time in. So I really think that's what the crux of urban planning is. And then in terms of thinking about it from different um, dichotomies like around kind of, you know, some people will talk about it being kind of a strategic process. Others might be more focused on the statutory or the legislative side of the industry then you've got different scales as well around being focused on either a specific site. So that kind of the micro level or the macro level around looking at cities and towns and whole precincts. So it's really a very diverse profession.
0: Awesome. So you've scaled all the way down to a single house or even parts of a single house, all the way up to entire cities and regions. And I guess to a certain degree, you'd probably consider state level planning and depending on the country there might be federal levels of planning as well so if you were to sum up the state of urban planning as it is right now could you point to anything in particular that's being done well um, and anything that's being done particularly poorly
1: oh there's lots of things that are being done really well and also lots of things that are, are not being done so well or have opportunities to improve let's say Um, I think one of the biggest responsibilities of an urban planner is to not just building housing but creating towns and precincts where people of all different kind of backgrounds and socioeconomic levels of advantage or disadvantage can have somewhere to live. And I think it obviously touches lots of different industries, but in particular, I think when it comes to like the actual nuts and bolts of how do we deliver housing, urban planners play a huge responsibility in helping to really get that right. And it's great to see that there are some fantastic examples all around Australia of state governments, of um, private developers really working together to deliver some really great communities and some really well integrated places. I think in terms of things that aren't being done so well at the moment, I think obviously there's a long way to go in terms of making sure that everyone has access to a home and not just a place to live, actually a home. If I was to boil it down, I think one of the things that I constantly find quite challenging to read about in the news is the reaction and the attitudes around urban planners from a non-planning perspective. Basically every day there's an article in the paper around, you know, um, ex-community not being happy with something or distrusting the government or the developers or the planners or blaming someone about something. And I think that's a huge kind of shame because I do ultimately think having obviously someone who works inside the industry that planners play. A really important role but only not only play an important role but do such great work at really trying to make places better for people my kind of philosophy is very much around trying to help um explain what urban planning is to people who aren't planners and really trying to start to build some more trust
0: between communities and the industry so it sounds like you're pretty purpose-driven behind what you do and why you've started the company but um I'm curious how your personal background has influenced this view um, about building community and building places to live. Um, And I'd like to start learning a bit more about you as a person and your personal history and what's led you up to this point. I know that you went from graduate all the way up to basically a senior leadership position in a variety of companies. What were your experiences as an urban planning employee
1: what do they say often that you don't really start learning till you leave university? And I think that's so true in terms of my experience. And I felt after I finished studying my planning degree that I barely knew what to do next in terms of becoming an urban planner. So... I was very fortunate to find myself in a company where it was basically very multidisciplinary from the start. So it wasn't just an urban planning practice, if you like. We had um, designers, we had landscape architects, we had all sorts of really creative and talented people that we would be working next to. So to kind of see the industry in real life and immerse into a professional environment was certainly a very eye-opening experience for a young graduate coming into this world for the first time. Um, I think in terms of then thinking about my broader earlier years and moving through my career, I think what I've always been is a bit more of a generalist. I've never particularly specialised in an one specific area of urban planning. And that's something I think often lots of people start with, but then quite quickly work out, oh, actually, I'm really interested in I'm interested in trees or I'm really interested in like sustainability or or whatever it might be. Um, And they kind of follow those avenues. It can be both a a blessing and, and a curse in disguise. But I've always had this curiosity for all aspects of the industry. So that was something that I was very keen to keep trying to learn and explore. I've done a lot of work with local government and state government as clients and partners, but I've never worked within those organisations. So I can only speak to um, my experience in private practice and um and as I've moved through my career, I've tried to formally partner myself with different mentors within my, the businesses that I've worked with who have di- very different skill sets from what I do so I can learn from them. And yeah, I suppose now thinking about that it's certainly been a real benefit to my world view and has really
0: enriched the way that I think about the industry too. So you went from Melbourne on to Sydney, which was, I guess it, in a manner of speaking, was a different company altogether. And then from Sydney, you went on to London and then you came back here and you ultimately decided to start CoFutures rather than take on a senior leadership role within uh, another company. Why was that? And what did you feel were the trade-offs when you had to make that decision?
1: Yeah. So look, I suppose, Sean, that one of the things that really excites me is the opportunity to build something new. And I say that fully checking the privilege that's associated with that kind of sentiment because not everyone has the opportunity or the ability necessarily to be able to just, you know, start their own thing and kind of leave behind the security of a well-paying job um, and that certainty of income. But... I think the thing that really got me over the line, obviously when I was hatching all these plans, it was right throughout COVID. I think probably a lot of us had a couple of um, existential moments throughout those years. And certainly for me, it gave me uh, a lot of time to really think about what I want to do with the rest of my career. And... The idea of going back into the corporate planning world or going working to achieve someone else's vision just wasn't something that I felt like I could really wholeheartedly commit to um, for the rest of my life. So naturally decided to explore whether it was impossible for me to go out and start my own thing i mean yes absolutely there were trade-offs on that and as any kind of startup person entrepreneur would say it certainly there's an element of risk taking there that you know you've got to be comfortable with to be able to do that it, it does take a bit of grit and a bit of determination to give it a crack but i think once you rip that band-aid off it, it actually you realize very quickly that you've made that choice and even though that's something that is certainly a great exciting opportunity there's also it still comes with lots of responsibility i think you've got to be very mindful of that as well
0: so let's talk more about CoFutures. now that you founded it and it's been a little bit of a journey can you tell us what is it that CoFutures does since you're able to shape this on your own now without somebody else's direction what kinds of services and products do you offer? And I'd add to that, what would you like to do more of?
1: So there are three areas that we focus on at CoFutures. So the first domain is urban planning. And safe to say that everything that we do across CoFutures is very much kind of planning first. So it's informed by planning. It's informed by planning thinking as well, grounded and rooted in our experience at working as technical professionals in that space. So planning is our first domain. Second domain is around engagement. So what I mean by that is around working with local communities, working with internal and external government stakeholders, working with different organisations to help understand perspectives around particular urban planning projects. So for example, we do a lot of work, around housing and um, looking at understanding different perspectives and priorities and aspirations around how people would like to see their neighbourhood change over time. So engagement is really a very core part of what we do at Co Futures as well and I think it's that connection between understanding and listening to what people are saying and then translating that into urban planning outcomes. Then our third area, which is probably the area where I think there's a huge growth opportunity in terms of something that I think is probably quite untapped in the industry right now is around what I call broadly multimedia. What we do at the moment at CoFutures is we're exploring all sorts of different ways to bring video and different types of multimedia into the work that we do. And in particular, using, say for example, animated video as a tool to help communicate and to create that conversation around urban planning and engaging topics. So you can start to see how they all blend and fold into each other.
0: Awesome. Earlier, you mentioned that you've not worked within government itself and you've only worked in the consultancy space. Who would CoFutures clients be and how do you sell and market to them to entice their business?
1: Yeah, so at the moment, our client base is predominantly still very much in that local government and state government space. That's probably where my expertise lies in terms of being able to work with those clients and understanding what they need and how they operate. So that's very much the space that I feel very safe in. In terms of how we market and basically win work, we do a lot of competitive tendering so going through that open tender process where we will see a a project brief that we are interested in that we think we can add value and which aligns with our skill set and expertise so cofutures will often partner with different companies who have similar experiences or maybe some complementary skill sets that we can combine to then basically Pull together a proposal to to submit for consideration so that's one of the key ways that we win work and market ourselves if you like and then the other way is just by word of mouth and i think being in this early kind of startup phase i've been very much leaning into my networks my connections people i know people who know people who know people and it's really as they say you've just got to roll your sleeves up and get out there and really just have lots of coffee
0: catch-ups And there's also a YouTube channel, isn't there? There
1: is a YouTube channel, yes. And that's a core part of our strategy. And I'd say that's probably something that differentiates CoFutures from a lot of other planning and engagement practices. So we use YouTube as basically our thought leadership repository. So it's a space for the last 12 months where we've been trialing, testing and experimenting different types of content and information and ways of presenting that information. And the whole purpose of the channel is essentially to help build a new audience around planning and to really inspire a new generation of people who are interested in the built environments but don't necessarily know where to find information or to understand some of those key topics and concepts. So that's what we really try to do in the channel is to break that down. And we are continuing to grow that. Obviously it's quite time consuming and a resource intensive, but it's certainly a really important part of what we do. And we always make the space for that kind of thought leadership.
0: And it sounds like that's something which other planning firms are not doing or not doing as well, or as a core part of their strategy. So why do you think they aren't doing it? It is
1: very time consuming. And I think that you can have the skills and you can have the will. I think, you know, we all have so many ideas every single day around things that we could and couldn't be doing, but I think at the end of the day, particularly when you're working, I suppose, within the constraints of a larger organization, just creating the space to do that alongside all your other project work and tasks. Yeah. It's certainly much uh, harder than it seems on the outside. So even though it might only be a three or four or five minute video to create that, you need to do research. You need to uh, do the recording, the audio, the animation, subtitles, you know, there's a whole number of layers to creating video. I'm sure you know, showing all your podcasting there's a lot that goes into these things and when you're trying to balance that with also trying to do project work it can be very yeah quite challenging so i think it can be a barrier and i think certainly you need the right people as well who are motivated and want to do that as well and that's another factor
0: i'm gonna circle back to the three domains that you mentioned so you had domain one which was urban planning domain three which was multimedia and domain two which is engagement. And I think that's probably the most nebulous term, despite you saying multimedia was, for lack of a better word, multimedia. So for anybody who's not in the urban planning industry and might not be so familiar with what engagement is, can you give us, I guess, a rundown of what that is and if there's a particular like good example of what in- good engagement looks like?
1: The... The whole purpose of urban planning is to help create great places for people. But we can't do that if we don't know what people want. And one of the key ways that we as planners can understand what different people want is by going and talking to them and having a conversation and listening. And we call that community engagement. And I think that over time, that certainly come from probably more humble beginnings of being something that was a little bit more informal and something that just happened sometimes or maybe it didn't. But then over the past, 20 or 30 years as an industry it's almost grown to be its own standalone profession so you have people who are professional community engagement practitioners and that's what they do they speak with people they're experts in being able to facilitate workshops and co-design with different people and do all sorts of amazing things trying to unlock and unpack different types of information and perspectives around what people want. So it's almost like a bit of an art in the way I see it because, you know, it's ultimately it's about connecting with people and having that skill set is something that is not every single person has, right? And certainly when it comes to the urban planning industry, often you'll come across people who are great technicians or who are very skilled at creating strategies and doing their plan making, if you like, But they don't necessarily possess the same kind of skill set to be able to also have conversations about the work that they've done. So that's where community engagement practitioners come in to really help to facilitate those conversations and help to gather information that will then inform the development of whatever the plan might be that is being created.
0: And if you were to pinpoint from your career personally or an example that you studied, what is a good example of how this has been done
1: so i think when you're running a community engagement process there are parameters that as practitioners that we like to work within and generally those parameters follow a a broad sort of three or four stage process and i like to think of a successful community engagement process as one that establishes a purpose and an objective right from the start. So what are we going at and actually trying to speak to people about and understand? Because I think if you don't have that clarity of purpose at the start, then you're just wasting everyone's time and you often don't get any useful information. And then all the way through to once you've actually gone through that kind of process of designing your engagement approach and your engagement strategy, delivering it and then reviewing and analysing the feedback that you get from that, for me, the second most important thing is also then being able to share what you've heard back with people who have given their time up to engage with you. And I think a good process or a good example of community engagement is one where you have that closed loop, they like to call it closing the feedback loop. And really, I think if we can't do that as a kind of a basic approach to community engagement, then I think all sorts of other issues start to come into the play
0: around you know, distrust that's good, actually. Distrust is a good place to bounce off from, because earlier you mentioned that you're sick and tired of seeing reports in the papers about the community distrusting various parties, whether it's developers or planners or government or you know some other body that isn't the community. So when that happens, that's a symptom, in a way, of a process that's gone wrong somewhere that hasn't followed what you've just described, or has followed a different process, and it hasn't worked out. And whoever has done that community engagement, for whatever reason, might have done it that way because they were trained that way, and it's the way they've always done it. Or they might not necessarily be community engagement specialists, and therefore may not be able to communicate as effectively as the demands of the job require. But... These reports are common. Uh, Like you said, you see them a lot. So there's obviously some issue somewhere lurking in the background where the community engagement process hasn't changed and people are still feeling that there's friction somewhere somehow and that their voices aren't being heard. You said earlier that you work with various stakeholders within a variety of organizations in particular, various levels of government. What's been the hardest part of convincing those stakeholders why their process needs to change?
1: One of the biggest challenges I see at the moment is that the community engagement process is intrinsically linked with a planning process. And a typical urban planning process can often be quite rigid and quite linear. So let's take for an example the development of a local housing strategy in your local X area. Basically, these kind of big strategic projects follow a three or four stage process from your inception of the project all the way through to the development of the draft plan and your final plan. So it's pretty much that formula for a lot of big plans the way in which the community engagement process has to fit in between those stages, um, the window is often quite small and that doesn't afford you as an engagement practitioner much time to be able to really have meaningful conversations when you're working within the parameters of this very tight and rigid planning process. And so that means at the end of the day, Sometimes you don't have the, the, the chance to be able to engage as thoroughly as you'd like to or as broadly as you'd like to or as deeply as you'd like to. And also you don't always have the time to be able to close that loop because you're constantly moving forward so quickly that you start to get all these other overlays of requirements, I suppose, within the project. So that's one part of it. Then i think the other challenge around that whole kind of conversation around distrust and the attitudes around community engagement is that we are at the moment living in a world where distrust is the default kind of feeling that people have when they're approached by their local council or by a consultant to ask them a question about something why should I give you a response to that? What's, what, what are you going to do with that information? I've already get given you lots of feedback in the past and I haven't heard anything. And like, these are all very valid comments. And it's certainly, I, I would be very frustrated if someone asked me the same question five different times over the course of a year you know that's not a good way to build relationships as well so you can start to see there's lots of complexities to the way in which community engagement interacts with planning and then interacts and interfaces with the people in which it's trying to plan for And when you overlay other broader factors around politics and it starts to get lots of different stakeholders involved and it starts to get quite complex. And really, it moves from being this process of getting feedback and listening to also a process of managing expectations and carefully making sure that you're not under or over committing on your promises to everyone that you're working with.
0: That's fascinating. There's so many layers of human dynamics to that. Speaking of layers, actually, when you work with your various government bodies, presumably you've got a point of contact that you work closely with. And if this is, say, like a citywide strategy, presumably there's also higher level stakeholders involved, like directors and executives, and maybe all the way up to the CEO or something, depending on the issue. So when you're trying to convince people things need to change or the process needs to change, Have you seen this work better from the bottom up where you work with teams, say like comms teams or planning teams, or has it worked better from the top down if you're working with executives and directors?
1: Look, it needs to come from both directions. I think I've had experience on both ends in terms of kind of working with executive teams to help bring to life their vision, but equally being rolling up my sleeves and actually delivering a community program and understanding firsthand what it's like and some of the challenges around being able to actually do that on the ground as an everyday citizen. And I think that ultimately you need the drive and you need the vision from the corporate and the executive level in order to be able to start those conversations around change. But then you also need community or a group of communities who are willing to be actively involved. And that doesn't necessarily mean we need you to engage on a project in a traditional way, so through surveys and all those kind of other ways. Like, yes, they have a time and place, but actually it's about feeling connected as a person to the place that you're living in, enough to want to actually participate in helping to shape that. And I think that was where there's so much opportunity that sits outside of the traditional realms of planning and engagement to um, start to explore. And that's where you start to see these other umbrella industries popping up around placemaking and around social strategy and all these other really interesting areas of the industry, which I think play together a really powerful role in helping to shift that power dynamic because i think ultimately at the end of the day there is still going to be a big power shift around or big power difference between like local community people and people working in those silos um but yeah I, i think that i think that it does need to come from both from both ends
0: When you're working on such strategies, you know, obviously cities change, but they do take some time to change, right? Some of these plans will be like five-year plans, 10-year plans, 20, 30-year plans. And as you and I have seen, like even in the last two or three years of our lives, a lot can change. And if we extrapolate things out to 20 or 30 years, that increases the variance of outcomes so when it comes to expectations management of what this plan intends to do or what people could expect their neighborhood to look like in 10 years or 15 or 20 years, how would you go about communicating that?
1: Look, I think you've touched on a really fascinating point there because ultimately, like, it's really hard to have a conversation with someone about the future. I don't even know what I want to do next week, let alone in 5, 10, 15 years time. And when you're asking these big strategic questions about how do you want your city to look in the future, I think there's a level of assumption that we make as an industry that people have the skills to be able to, A, have those conversations as a a good person, but also B, that practitioners who are asking those questions have the capabilities and the expertise required to be able to communicate what's needed for that person to be able to respond and engage in a meaningful way. So there's a couple of overlays to that and it's not easy is the short answer and I think having conversations about change, having conversations about the future and particularly in the context of urban and city planning is something that I think is not always done well and you look at a lot of the big statewide strategies, and this is certainly something that I'm starting to see now, is that the traditional ways of engaging around just collecting surveys and doing feedback forms and putting a couple of dots on a map or whatever it might be, they absolutely have a place and they can work in terms of tools for gathering feedback. But actually, do we get meaningful information out of that all the time. And that's something I've constantly been questioning and thinking about in the work that I do every day and thinking about is there a better way that we could be asking these questions? Is there a better way that we can be trying to get to a, a more meaty response? And I think we often go into these processes where we already know what the outcome might be or have already curated what we think that community wants or needs. So then why are we asking those questions in the first place and what do we actually need and want from them and what areas of a plan can people actually influence? And I think for me, that's an ongoing kind of challenge. And I think think probably not to generalise, but I do think that a lot of community engagement practitioners are constantly challenged by challenging themselves to think of ways to better get more meaningful feedback
0: that actually helps to inform a strategic outcome. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. Like, like genuinely, that's a great answer. I think that it's an underappreciated facet of communicating urban planning, which is why you founded this company in the first place, which takes me on to the journey that you've had so far in founding this company. Um, how long has it been? So we've just hit our 12-month milestone, so just over a year now. Okay, so in that time... There's obviously some difficult challenges to grapple with in terms of doing work that is good enough, but good enough as in ticking the boxes, but is it actually good enough to meet the needs of the community? And there's obvious runway for things that you could do. However, I was wondering, in the 12 or so months that you've been operating, what's been the biggest mistake that you think you've made since founding the company? And what have you learned from it?
1: I think my biggest mistake is the accumulation of lots of little mistakes along the way. And I know that's a bit of a cop-out of a response, but I do think constantly you have to be okay with knowing that you're not going to be like an expert in everything, and particularly when you start to move away from not just having to focus on doing the technical work and the project-based work, but you need to also make decisions about how to run your business. I'm not an expert in that, it's the first time I've ever started something, so there's guaranteed going to be things that I do wrong along the way or could have done better, and with the benefit of hindsight and retrospect, of course, you would do some things differently. But I think probably, particularly in the early months of when I first started, I think I often questioned whether I had made the mistake of going out on my own and doing that as a thing. I think, and it's probably something that I'm, that will come up again and again over the coming months and years as we move through this. But I think you, know, you reach crossroads in your decision. For me personally, I had committed to trying to make this work and giving it a good red hot go, and. I'm very fortunate now to be in a position where I've managed to build a steady pipeline of work and then starting to get my name and my brand out there. And with those little kind of successes, you start to build confidence in the way that you run things and the way that you can communicate what you do. And actually, the most important thing is really the belief in yourself that you can do it. And that's, I think, not a skill necessary that I had coming into this. I think it's something that you start to learn and grow and mature over time with. So I would say that whether it's a mistake or whether it's just anxieties or whether it's insecurities or whether it's a whole lot of different emotions, but certainly constantly questioning whether starting my own business was the right thing to do. But ultimately, I think definitely wouldn't look back.
0: What was the founder imposter syndrome feeling like?
1: Oh, huge. I mentioned earlier on in this conversation that one of my biggest challenges for me was that I was so interested in so many areas of the planning gamut. It's taken me 12 months to really sit down and define those three domains that I'm working in now and being able to articulate that in a way that's compelling and interesting and relevant to whoever I'm talking to. Um, And I think I knew I wanted to start something and I knew I wanted to have a go at trying to build a business, but I probably went into it not knowing what that looked like straight away. And it's taken me time to work that out. But ultimately, I think now I've got to a point where... I'm realizing that the power of what I can do and the areas that I can really help in are actually when I'm constantly activating all three of those domains and being able to use each of them to inform a different way of thinking or in a different
0: approach. So you've established yourself now. You're on solid ground. You're on two feet. And looking ahead to the growth of co-futures, you've actually made your first couple of hires in the recent days I have yes
1: Um, yes yes
0: so now that you've got them on board I'm curious what's the kind of culture that you want to instill in your company
1: so I'm really keen to as we grow to continue trying to create a really dynamic working environment where everyone feels comfortable and safe to be able to express their own opinions, their own thoughts, and really ultimately, at the end of the the day, motivated to do great work. And I think one of the things that, in my experience of working with people and working in teams, I think one of the things that I am constantly mindful of, and particularly will be, or try to be as we continue to grow, is that everyone comes into a professional working environment with different life circumstances with different motivations for why they're there and what they're doing and your job or your role or your responsibility as an employer is not to challenge or try to change that but it's to find ways to connect and relate and inspire good work through creating that dynamic and safe environment for people to actually work. So I think the the, the expectation now that people come into a business and spend 5, 10, 15 years in the same place, I think that's certainly changing and has changed, certainly in recent times, but even I think there's been a longer trend of movement around the place. And I think that I've seen these first steps into starting to build a team as really exciting, but ultimately, I think there's a responsibility there for me to make sure that even though we're working mostly remotely, that we can create that really safe, dynamic working
0: place. Okay, so there's definitely some commitments that you are going to make to your staff in terms of helping create the environment for them to feel safe and flourish, right? But what would you expect of them?
1: What's the classic phrase? Like, always hire people who are smarter than you, right? Um, And so I expect a level of engagement and interest in what they're doing. I don't expect, particularly in these earlier years where I'm probably going to be working a lot with up-and-coming professionals who might be young in their careers, I don't expect them to be particularly experienced in any of the technical aspects of planning or engagement or multimedia but certainly expect a willingness to learn, an open mind, a curiosity. And I think ultimately that's the thing that got me into planning was that curious kind of mind. And I think I'd like, I would like to see that reflected in kind of the people around us as well, because I do think that helps you both as an individual, but as a team drive forward together.
0: So it sounds like you're trying to create this really positive culture. And I was wondering if there was a particular source of inspiration or a biggest influence for this.
1: So I've, I can only speak to the experience of the places that I've worked at. And I think earlier we touched on those being very different in terms of both the way in which kind of the work we did, but also the experience we had working in them. And I think what I've done is taken (laughs) the best parts of all of those and tried to fuse those into what does that look like at co-futures. And so Ultimately, something I've been toying with recently as well is actually thinking about when we start to move into maybe getting some more permanent or part-time stuff, actually, what does the working week look like? Is it, does it need to be five days a week? And I know there's lots of conversations at the moment about four-day weeks and whether they're good or bad things. and. Ultimately, I think there's something in there and I'd like to explore that a bit further and think about, well, actually, um, why do we need to be working five days? Why does it need to be Monday to Friday? Do they even suit everyone need anymore? So I'd like to just constantly be asking myself those questions and be open-minded to taking learnings from other people and other case studies that have or haven't worked in the past.
0: Would you trial something that hasn't been in a case study? Just because it felt right
1: i would to an extent i mean i think ultimately it comes down to making sure first and foremost that you can kind of service the clients and the work that you have on um but i don't necessarily think that needs to be in the same way as it has been typically and there's also that level of kind of again expectations management as well so for example if you don't work on fridays Then deliver to a Thursday. But uh, this this whole idea of the 4pm, 5pm, Friday deadline just seems so arbitrary because no one reads stuff on the weekend. (laughs) Um, Not even even the most dedicated client, I would hazard to say, would be willing to give up their weekend to read a 200-page report. So yeah, I think it's about shifting that and I think you can only do that once you start to do a bit of trialing and erroring and making sure that you've got the right settings for yourself in your
0: own kind of situation. Okay, so now that CoFutures is established, you've got your first couple of hires, you've got a solid pipeline of work, you see a big opportunity in multimedia and better communicating urban planning. If everything goes right for you, and I'm asking this in the same vein as like the expectations management conversation we had about a 30-year plan earlier, if everything goes right for you, what does the future look like? So I think...
1: The answer for me is simple, is that it goes back to the core DNA of co-futures and what our purpose in the world is. And I think if everything goes right, and what does the world look like then? I think for me, it's that people are feeling more inspired to want to participate in shaping their cities and their neighborhoods and have the resources and the information to be able to do so. And I think through greater levels of participation, can we then really start to create and shape plans that are truly reflective of the people that we're planning for.
0: I love that answer. Like genuinely, it's heartwarming. That's like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You've obviously made a big commitment in your personal life and professional life to step away from the corporate world and to start your own company in order to achieve that. But aside from that big commitment, what's something you'd be willing to say, I'm going to do this now in order to help get to that pot of gold?
1: For me personally, I think it's about trying to remain open-minded and willing to try new things, constantly trying to challenge test assumptions that have existed around what we do and how we do it i think there's certainly a commitment for me to be trying to immerse myself in other worlds that aren't just urban planning because i recognize that being able to be good and valuable at what you do you also need to have the broader perspective So I think it's constantly just making sure that we, or me personally, that I continue to put myself into situations that might not necessarily always be comfortable and might not necessarily always be where I want to be spending my time. But I think ultimately when you can immerse yourself and learn from what others are doing is when you do your best thinking. And I would like to commit to doing that and then also bringing that back into the conversations that I'm having with my clients and on the projects that I'm working with and with the teams that I'm building around me, because I think ultimately, as you grow as a company, it becomes less about one person's idea and more about the collective. And I think ultimately, I'd like to keep that certainly front and center of the way that I move forward.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation, Dan. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. And I wish co all the best. It sounds like an exciting future. And I share the same vision of the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So let's say we check in, in like six to 12 months or so and see how co is going then.
1: Yeah. Sounds great, Sean. And really good to be here. Great to have this chat. And I think certainly lots of really thought provoking questions and provocations there to have a think about as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you once again. To find out more about CoFutures, head to cofutures.com.au. If you're curious about the multimedia work they're doing, or are interested in some urban planning basics, head on over to the CoFutures YouTube channel. You'll find all these links and more in today's show notes.